us pray. Oh God, our Father, we know that you have spoken and we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would now enable us to hear the words of your Son with faith and obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Recently, a friend told me a story about a Christian camp that she used to attend as a child. And they had a very interesting tradition at this camp. On random occasions, she said, while all the campers were eating in the cafeteria, someone would all of a sudden announce rapture practice. And when that announcement was made, all of the campers had to stand on their chairs and look up toward heaven and lift their arms up in the air and look into the skies and await the moment when Christ would return and bring them up into himself in the clouds. And I have to say, when I first heard that story, I laughed Um, because it just seemed so ridiculous so comically absurd, like the kind of thing you would see on a Bill Maher documentary about crazy things religious people do. And I have to say that since I'm being honest, in my laughter, there was no small amount of spiritual pride. Now, I wouldn't have admitted it at the time, and I may not have even realized it, but deep down, deep down I know that I was thanking God that my faith is more intelligent and more mature, and more sophisticated than those silly Christians getting kids to stand on chairs. But you know, now that I've had more time to think about it, I've had a change of heart about those rapture drills. Not because I agree with the particular understanding that they had of what the last days will look like, but because I deeply admire what those camp leaders were doing. You see, they were actively teaching those campers to anticipate and to get ready for Jesus' return. They were training them to be watchful, to be prepared, to expectantly look forward to the day when their Lord would all of a sudden appear. And that is precisely what Jesus and the apostles did. Not just once, But if you read the pages of the New Testament, you'll see this is a theme that comes up again and again and again. In multiple of his epistles, Romans and Corinthians, Philippians and Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Timothy and Titus, in all of those, the Apostle Paul reminds the early Christians to whom he writes that Christ is coming again, that he is coming soon and that they need to make themselves ready. In other New Testament epistles, like the letter to the Hebrews in 1st and 2nd Peter, we're instructed to endure with faithfulness and with eager anticipation that fateful day. In the final book of our canonical scriptures, the book of Revelation, ends with a proclamation of Christ's imminent return and an exhortation to his bride, the church, to make herself ready. And in all four of the canonical gospels, this theme is brought up. Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
all have their own versions of Jesus' teaching about his final day and what it means to be ready for his return. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus comforts his followers on the, in the last hours of his death by telling them that he goes away to prepare a place for them, but then adding to that that he will surely return for them and that he will bring them to him. Now, I could continue, but you get the point. That Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead is not some minor or peripheral theme in the New Testament. This is a central and essential part of the gospel which Jesus and the apostles preached. And yet, despite its biblical prominence, and despite our regular confession of it when we say the creed together, I think it has to be said that on the whole, we Christians don't fare terribly well when it comes to eagerly expecting our Lord's return. Now, thankfully, we're not the only ones who struggle in this regard. In our gospel reading this morning from the book of Luke, we hear about a time when Jesus had to correct not only the Pharisees, but his own disciples regarding their attitude toward his return. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, we're told that a group of Pharisees asks Jesus when the kingdom of God would appear, when it would come. You know, on the face of it, this sounds like a pretty good question. I mean, if they're inquiring about when the kingdom would come, then you would assume that they're doing the right thing by looking forward to it and anticipating it. But Jesus seems to discern an error in their question because notice how he responds. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Or as the New American Standard translates it, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed. You see, what the Pharisees wanted to know is what signs they should be looking for. What signals would give them clues into God's timeline about the last days? And Jesus tells them that they've got it all wrong. They shouldn't be trying to interpret signs of the times. Nor should they be paying attention to other people who claim to know such signs, saying, look over here, here it is. Or look over there, look at that sign. Here it is, here it's coming. For, as Jesus goes on to say, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, this is a rather confusing saying. And this verse has caused no small amount of variety of interpretation over the years. For instance, Leo Tolstoy read this to say, the kingdom of God is within you. And then he wrote an entire book arguing that what Jesus is referring to here is a radical and absolute Christian ethic of nonviolence. But with all due respect to the great Tolstoy, that's not really the best translation, and it's certainly not the best interpretation. So what then is Jesus saying? Why does he tell the Pharisees, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst? I think you can get a better idea of it if you pay attention to the brief story that Luke includes right before this exchange, that story about the 10 lepers who come to visit Jesus and he cleanses them 
and only one of them, a Samaritan, returns to worship and give him thanks. You know, Jesus is disappointed in the other nine, but it's not because he's offended, as if he thinks it's rude and they should have come back and thanked him for the nice thing that he did. It's because, as he says, because they failed to give praise to God. And in so doing, those nine lepers demonstrated that they failed to understand what had happened to them. They thought that they were just the recipients of some wonderful, miraculous healing. But in reality, what had occurred to them was nothing less than the inbreaking of God's reign, his kingdom breaking into the world through the ministry of Jesus. They should have seen it. They had the scriptures to tell them what to look for, but they missed it. They didn't see it. They failed to recognize that their cleansing was evidence that the kingdom of God was in their very midst. And Jesus is suggesting that the Pharisees are prone to make the same mistake. With all their focus on signs and timelines, they're missing out on what God is actually doing right in front of them. But that's not the only error that Jesus attempts to correct in this passage. In verse 22, he turns from the Pharisees and he turns to his own disciples and gives them some instruction. And you know, when you read this, when you first start reading what Jesus says, it sounds like he's just repeating himself, like he's just giving them the exact same lesson. Listen to what he says in verses 23 and 24. They will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out to follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now, doesn't that sound like he's just repeating the same lesson that he just told the Pharisees? I mean, that warning about not getting distracted by people telling you they see the signs that now is the time, that sure sounds pretty familiar. But notice Jesus does not give the same reasoning to the disciples that he gave to the Pharisees. In this case, he doesn't tell them, don't get distracted because you'll miss the kingdom of God in your midst. In this case, Jesus tells them not to get distracted because when the Son of Man does return, it will be suddenly all at once and everywhere, like a bolt of lightning streaking across the sky. And then to illustrate his point, he reminds them about two stories from the book of Genesis, the story of Noah and the story of Lot. Just as in the days of Noah, he says, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Listen to this. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, there is a warning for us in both of these stories, Jesus is saying. On both of these occasions, the judgment and appearance of God came suddenly and severely, and people just weren't ready for it. They weren't prepared. They weren't watching for it. They weren't anticipating it. They were too distracted with eating and drinking and selling 
and buying and planting and building, too focused on the cares of this life to give much thought at all to the judgment of God or the life to come. In our own day, we continue to see evidence of both of these errors. On the one hand, there's the error of the Pharisees, where we become so focused on looking out for signs of the future and signs of the last days that we fail to see what God is doing right in front of us. We miss the presence of the kingdom in our very midst. You've probably heard that saying before. You know that saying that some people are just too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? I actually don't think that's a very fair criticism. At least not of people whose lives are motivated by a real and genuine anticipation of heaven. But it is fair to say that some people are simply too obsessed with deciphering signs and trying to figure out the future to be of any good for the work of the kingdom in the present. That's what Jesus was warning these Pharisees about. That they would be too wrapped up for looking for signs of his coming to see how the rule and the reign of God was breaking into the world around them. And because of that, they would also miss out on how they were being called to act as ambassadors of that kingdom in their lives. They ran the risk of being too apocalyptically minded to be of any kingdom good. That was a danger for the Pharisees back then, and it's a danger for Christians today. But that is not the only danger. Jesus went on to point out to his disciples that, yes, it's possible to get too wrapped up looking for signs of Jesus' return, but it is equally possible to make the error of simply not anticipating it whatsoever, of just ignoring it altogether. And to be honest, that is the error that I see much more prominently in my own life and more prominently in the Christians around me. Our problem is not that we're spending all of our time and attention obsessing on the life to come. Our problem tends to be that we devote all of our energy and focus to the cares of life in the present. We're like those people in the days of Noah and Lot, obsessing over food and feasting and financial growth with little thought to the fact that Jesus may return at any moment. Now, why this is such a common error, I'm not entirely sure. To be honest, I hate to admit this, but to be honest, part of the reason may be the fault of people like me, pastors and teachers in the church. When I was thinking about this sermon, I came across something by the Catholic theologian Doug Farrow. And I found what he said very convicting. He said, part of the key problem in the church today is that its theologians and its preachers no longer trouble themselves much to confess Christ's coming. The scripture is read, the creed said, the liturgy prayed, the word of his coming is there and cannot be avoided. Yet, it is widely ignored by those who speak to and for the church who seem always to have something more pressing to say. And when I read that, I prayed that that would not be true of my ministry. But I do think that one of the reasons that Christians often ignore Jesus' promise to return is because those who have been entrusted to teach them 
say so little about it. But I don't think that's the only reason. Maybe the biggest reason that we tend to ignore Jesus' coming again is because if we're honest with ourselves deep down, we don't really want him to come back. At least not yet. When I was a teenager, I remember that there was this popular Christian song on the radio by a singer named Crystal Lewis. You're pretty deep in Christian subculture if you're getting this reference right now, Crystal Lewis. Well, this chorus of her song mostly consisted in this single line, people get ready, Jesus is coming, soon we'll be going home. And I remember I was a young teenager and I heard that song on the radio and I thought, ooh, well, I really hope that he takes a little while, that he doesn't come too soon because I still had things I wanted to experience in life. I still had goals. I had things I wanted to do, things to accomplish, like getting married. That was a big goal. Well, I mean, I was a teenage boy, so you could probably guess what I was really looking forward to there. But, you know, you get the point. I was enjoying my life. I still had things I wanted to do. I wasn't ready for Jesus to come back yet. And I don't think I'm alone in that regard. St. Augustine, at one point during his conversion experience, he prayed a prayer to God, O Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. (laughs) And I think that, if we're honest, that's an attitude a lot of us have about Jesus' return. O Lord, come again. Come, Lord Jesus, but not yet. And maybe that's because we don't really understand why we should look forward to his return. We don't understand why his coming again is such good news in the first place. So this morning, perhaps we need to hear, we need to remember what it is that Jesus actually promises he will do when he returns. When Jesus returns, he will put a final end to every form of evil that troubles us. No man or woman will ever again receive a cancer diagnosis. No woman or child will ever again be abused. No parent will mourn a dead child. No child will grieve a lost parent. No country will ever again invade another country. No refugee will ever again be forced to flee to a foreign land. When Jesus returns, he will bring a final healing to our minds and bodies. There will be no more injury and no more pain. No more arthritic joints. No more swings of blood pressure or blood sugar. No more strokes, no more heart attacks. Anxiety, depression, eating disorders will all be a thing of the distant past. No more worry, no more fear, no more shame, no more loneliness. When Jesus returns, we will at long last know what it means to be fully at peace. We will know what it means to know and to be completely known, to love and to be unconditionally loved. When Jesus returns, we will finally know who we are and where we belong. We will finally know what it feels like for the first time to be fully alive. All of this and more Jesus has promised to us when he comes again. 
And that's why in the New Testament, Christians were instructed not only to confess Christ's coming, but to look forward to it with eager anticipation. And that's also one of the reasons why Jesus instituted this meal that we celebrate together every week. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. In Revelation chapter 19, we are told that when Christ comes again, there will be a grand and momentous feast, the likes of which has never been seen, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of those who are united to Christ will sit down and dine with him face to face. That's what we are looking forward to every time we eat this bread and drink this wine. We are proclaiming not only Jesus' death, but that he will come again. And we are practicing for the day when we will sit with him in glory and we'll celebrate with the greatest meal that history has ever seen. Remember that when you come forward to receive communion this morning. Remember that Christ is coming again. He is coming at a moment's notice. In fact, this Sunday morning may be the very last time that we receive this meal together again before he comes. But above all, remember that whatever happiness, whatever peace, whatever contentment you have been blessed to know in this life is nothing but a pale, fleeting shadow of the joy that awaits. So as you come forward to the rail, I invite you to remember the last words we hear from the lips of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 22, where he says, Surely I am coming soon. And I invite you to make your response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.